Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT. Thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery with your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. on FM Los 102.3 FM Riverside and 1050 AM Palm Springs. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. I'm sitting here with Mr. Uh, David Rose Martino. <laughs> That's my new name, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm telling you, we're sticking with that. I like You're it. Sticking with that, okay. It sounds nice. It sounds pleasant. It doesn't sound it does, serial actually. killer. Yeah. It doesn't sound mean, you know, <laughs> and everyone knows how rough you are, so that's, it's, you know, oh, yes. it softens up the mean guy. Yeah. Hey, and you're putting up all those new, um, new reviews. Yeah, I have two more up, uh, Black Widow and A Quiet Place Part 2. You know, I, I've never seen A Quiet Place Part 1. I, I, I've heard her. Oh, that's very good. Yeah, I've heard that, and I've heard her talk, uh, about it in interviews, um, hmm. but I've never... I don't know why I missed it. Was that during the pandemic? Was that it or something? I, I think that was before. Oh. I think. I, now I, I can't remember. I'm getting too old. I just don't. I don't know. I'm losing my mind, too. Was it pre or after or during, you know? I'd have to look it up. Yeah. So that's crazy. Wow. I, I don't remember it. I remember the name of the movie. Didn't it win Best Picture or up for Best Picture or something? Yeah. I think it was, you know, now that I think about it, I think it was like, what was it, 2018? Yeah, it was 2018, up. so it was, oh. it was before the pandemic, I believe. Jeez, I was only a kid then. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> now, I'm, now I'm old. Boy, I'll tell you, what, what happened? Um, okay, now, let's get into the serious stuff here today. We're, we're, this is the important stuff. Uh, we got another author. Now, this, now, she is from Rattling Good Yarns Press, or she's not from there, but she <laughs> is publishing through them. And so her new book, which came out on June 1st, is Infraction, 
And uh, the author is our guest, Yvonne Zipter. Thank you for being here. Uh, my pleasure. Well, we'll see if you say that at the end of the show. <laughs> Might not be. Um, no, hey, listen, this is great. It's great to have you. And um, we don't know much about you. You know, you're kind of a newbie for us. So tell us a little bit about your history. Let's let the listeners know who you are and, and how, when did the writing start for you? Um, well, I started writing really bad poetry in high school. Uh, <laughs> I didn't start getting serious about it until after college. Um, my first uh, collection of poems was published in 1990, and um, and then I, in the middle of that, or just before that was published, I started um, writing a column for the gay press. It was syndicated um, at a bunch of places around the country. And it was basically a humor column about n lesbian life, uh, and then some of those essays got collected into a book called Ransacking the Closet. Um, and actually my first my first book was um, Diamonds Are Dyke's Best Friend about the role of softball in the lesbian community. Um, and and it, that book wasn't, I, I had hoped to make it a little more scholarly and in-depth, but my publisher wanted something that would have a broad appeal. And I thought, okay, well, you know, somebody, this is a start. This is the first book on this. Somebody will come along eventually and write, you know, something else that's that's more in depth and and whatnot. And uh, nobody ever did. So it's it sort of stands as a, a classic. Um, unfortunately, now out of print. But um, so those were my first few books, uh, and then. Um, I just had a collection of poems called Kissing the Long Face of the Greyhound come out last summer. And the um, novel is the first long fiction that I've had published. I've had a few short stories published, but um, I'm not a great fan of short stories. I like to really dig into a, a piece of fiction, so I, I read a lot of novels. and. Uh, um, well, that's that's the basic history. I could I could give you more detail about how I got into this particular novel, but I'll let you ask some more questions. Well, yeah, no, I was just wondering. So uh, it's always fascinating to find out the history of a writer. So when you when you say you were writing uh, in school, but it was it was bad, or you considered it bad, and you weren't serious until college, what what was the difference? Like, what made you go from what you considered bad to go well? I'm going to write serious stuff. What, was there a catalyst or something that made you want to go to be a more um, serious writer? Well, you know, I think in high school I didn't have a great deal of exposure to poetry, and it was all kind of um, what I was writing was very schmaltzy and abstract and, um, you know, just, just not especially polished. Uh, and then in college I took pretty much the only creative writing class I had. I was not, I was not an English major. I took a creative writing class um, and we, you know, started out studying Sylvia Plath and I was just stunned by the use of language in her poems. And that's what really 
got me inspired. And from that point on, I just started reading poetry voraciously and just learned how to write from from reading and, and practicing and trying to get better. Hmm. You know, but, okay, so going from poetry into a novel or a fiction, um, that's a bit of a change. What, what was... What was uh, the the thing that made you kind of go into a novel or a full story rather than just poetry? Yeah, I you know, I had been wanting to write a novel for a long time, and I probably tried two or three times, but I didn't really have a good sense of what I was doing or what I wanted the plot to be, and they all kind of just died after a few pages. And then... Um, I just I retired in uh, 2018 as a manuscript editor at the University of Chicago Press, and when I was working in the journals division there, I um, edited a among other journals a journal called Science Journal of Women and Culture and Society, and one of their regular features was they published archival material, um, things that hadn't been published anywhere before. In this particular issue that I edited, there was an archive of notes taken by a gynecologist in late 19th century Russia about three lesbians that he had been treating. And one was a Jewish woman, one was a prostitute, and then one was uh, from the landed gentry. And all of the stories were interesting, but it was that, that last one, the woman from the landed gentry, just grabbed me. It was just such a good, interesting story, and I thought immediately this would make a great novel. And then I spent about two years trying to convince well, that about six trying to convince myself that I couldn't write this because I didn't have any background in Russian or Russian history, or but I couldn't stop thinking about it, and then I went. That was then I jumped into two years of just doing research, so I could bring myself up to speed a little bit. So it was a, it was a slow process, but even during times when when work um, and other things interrupted, and you know I wouldn't look at it for a year or two, I'd come back to it and be just as excited about it as I was before. So I felt like I was on to something. Well, that's pretty interesting, you know. I was just like, um, so when you get into when you wrote this book, Infraction, what was the um, what was the thought behind it? Like, what 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 got you into the story? Well, I don't want to give any spoilers, but no. um, yeah, he the the gynecologist. Um, he, he went into a lot of detail about it. Was actually the the partner of the woman he was. Um, working with that he ended up spending the most time writing about and he went into a lot of detail about her childhood and her time at um, after her mother died being sent away to boarding school in St. Petersburg and um, just kind of the whole story of her life and I I thought it was amazing and I thought other people need to, to know about this and it was kind of my mission to put it in a format that other people could easily access um, and, and uh, I, 
ended up taking a 12-page document and turning it into about 300 pages. So I, d I did add a few details along the way. <laughs> how, do you, how do you decide what, when you do a historical fiction, so you're taking kind of um, real people, real mm -hmm. characters, and real event, well, kind of real areas and sometimes real events, how do you decide what you're going to use and and what you're going to um, fictionalize? Yeah, that's a um, that's a good good question. I think one of the key things that I changed. I'm trying to think back now to when I was working on all of this. Um, the the main character uh, the char the women were not identified by name they were identified by initials and I I gave them names um, but Maria the main character was described as um, basically a stone butch like she liked to sexually arouse her partner but she didn't want to be touched and I thought I didn't really know how to to write about that because it's not part of my experience and so I just I made I made their relationship very mutual. Did you find any particular challenges writing a historical novel that takes place in 19th century Russia? Yeah that I mean that was why part of why it took me so long to write it, it, it is or to start writing is because I I thought I don't really have a sense of how these people would talk and so I spent a lot of time reading, you know, Tolstoy and Dostoevsky just to kind of get a flavor for how how they would speak. Um, and in early drafts, I went really formal with their speech, like I didn't use any contractions at all. And then I uh, went through a, a class on writing a novel proposal and the instructor was like, yeah, this is too stilted. You need to put some contractions in here. So, you know, that kind of evolved. But, yeah, it was just it was just trying to get into the head of people from a time and place I didn't know at all, you know, things that, that mm. we take for granted um, just weren't known to them at all. Um, and that's, again, where my research came in handy. I just read a lot. It's it's really interesting, but so so when you take a, a a story that's set in a different time in a different country, was there something that you wanted to get across? Because is there sort of subtext or is there something that you wanted people to take away from this, other than the surface story? Yeah, I mean, I think it's in some ways it's kind of timeless, and basically the message is you need to be honest about who you are. Um, and, and true to yourself, because that that um, dishonest by not fully disclosing things plays a key role in in how events unfold in the novel. Um, and I expect, I mean, I don't know. I don't know that that's entirely translatable what happens in the novel to you know present day but the but the basic idea of um, you need to be upfront about about who you are and 
um, circumstances so that things don't get messed up along the way. Well, we can certainly try. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't always go as planned. So when you go through a story and you're doing that research and you're kind of going into the history, were there things that kind of surprised you about that time and place? Ah, gosh. I mean, it was all so new to me, but um, there were there were definitely things that I focused on. I focused on um, the culture at that time, of things like uh, opera and um, dance and that kind of uh, stuff, and um, the food. Uh, I knew that I was going to have food come up a lot in the novel because I'm a big fan of food. Um, and uh, I worked in a couple of dogs along the way. So um, that was one of the things that was interesting to me uh, as I was going through this. There were pieces where I just couldn't find a lot of information already published. Like, did people in St. Petersburg at that time actually have dogs? And I would reach out to scholars who were completely unknown to me, but I saw that they had done some research on, you know, a topic that was, that touched on something I needed to know about. And I would write to them and ask them these questions, and they were just so generous. They would write back and, you know, lead me to sources and give me basic information. It was, um, it was a pretty great experience. I wonder, so how did the... Um gay and lesbian people live or or meet each other back then i mean there wasn't phone apps and stuff <laughs> you know and there probably wasn't really any big gay districts of town i would imagine um what what was kind of the uh means of people kind of meeting up well part of what was complicated about this is very little is known about lesbians at that time there's there are almost no sources that touch on that at all. Um, so I kind of had to imagine that part myself. On the other hand, a gay male culture is well documented and a lot of it was just fascinating to me about how how they these guys found each other. Um, and it was at the baths, at uh, the Cinzanelli Circus, um, they, there was a thing with uh, wearing a red tie was supposed to signal to other people. There were specific restaurants where, like, you know, Tchaikovsky and people, well-known gays would go. Um, so uh, I ended up adding a minor character who, who was gay just so I could talk about this stuff because I thought it was fascinating. But the women, I don't know, it was just kind of by chance, I think, you know, through boarding school. And then a, a large part of the novel has to do with uh, a series of lectures called the Allerchine Courses. And th this was kind of like a um, something that the government devised to placate women who were not allowed to pursue higher education at that time. So they just gave them these random lectures and there were people from all different classes of society and then often they would also meet after these lectures to talk about securing more rights for women. And so I think through those 
the allergene courses and the political meetings and whatnot, they, they could sort of find each other that way. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that the challenges that people um, went through in different times, different places, and how, how I, I think a lot of it's taken for granted now. Yeah, you know? yeah. You know, I mean, and, and certainly, I mean, the, the famous gay men were famous. You know, they were like princes and wealthy people, and they could get away with stuff that probably your average guy couldn't. Yeah, I would imagine, you know, if you've got some sort of family or power that um, you're able to skirt around it. Yeah. No pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How do you develop characters? Like, so you, you took the initials and stuff, so, and you made them into people. So, like, Myra, how, how would you decide um, what personality and what style and how they would act and react? Do you, do you sort of, like, see this in your head and you sort of develop it? Or is it, do you take a character or someone you kind of know um, already and, and build off of that? Like, where, how does it work for you? For, for Maria, she was, um, she was pretty well described in the, in the archive as being very opinionated, extremely intelligent, um, basically not, uh, putting up with nonsense from anyone. And so it was, she was easy to, to, to kind of develop. Um, she's certainly not based on me because I am, <laughs> I am not a strong, um, pushy personality, but, um, you know, given that kind of framework, it was easy to, to develop her. Vera, the other character, the love interest, it was a little, little more challenging. Um, and then, like the they live with um, Maria's maiden aunt, and she kind of represents the the old school of thinking about how society should be run and just you know kind of old fashioned. So they develop that way. Um, the men in the book, I had read a number of um, books of correspondence between men at that time, and they wrote like. And I don't even mean like gay men, but men writing to other men wrote in this really flowery and affectionate style. And I was really taken with that. And so all of the, the male characters appear as letter writers for the most part. Now, I was wondering when you, when you create character, do you have an inner monologue in your head? Do you, do you hear the characters? I know I hear voices. <laughs> Yeah. I, I was wondering, you know, is it an inner monologue? Are you um, translating images or s symbols, or, or how does that work for you? Um, that's a good. That's a that's a tough one. Um, you know, they just they evolved over time as I got to know who they were better and how they were interacting with each other. Um, but yeah, that I mean, that was that was definitely as I kind of alluded earlier, something I struggled with a bit um, to give them distinct voices. Hmm. And uh, I'm not sure, I mean, that's in part why a couple of the characters are written in third person, because I wasn't able to get a handle enough on how 
they would talk beyond little bits of dialogue here and there. And uh, um, I lost my train of thought. But anyway, yeah, so <laughs> um, the train has left the station. I, uh, I, um, yeah, I, you know, it, it, it's funny because I thought, well, I've read novels my entire life. I thought I had a sense of how they were constructed and, you know, how to do them. And I started writing and realized I knew nothing. So <laughs> it was a long process of trying to figure out um, all kinds of things, like how to format the book and which parts of the stories to tell and at what point um, they would fit best into the narrative. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that by the time I get to my next book, uh, I will have a better sense of how to create distinct characters. Um, I'm sort of toying with something that's set in Kentucky in the 1930s and 1940s, so already I've got an advantage in that I speak the same language as the characters. But, um, yeah, that's... It's a, it's a tricky, and I'm not sure I can even explain how how that all evolved. Well, it's it's. I think it's um it's a process, right? As we write more and do more, we get, you know, we develop those those sort of things, um, right. And start to understand them. You usually don't understand something until you've done it, and then you look back at it and you sort of start seeing things, yeah. or, or or understanding it, especially when you go to write the next book yeah that's you know. my hope <laughs> well it's generally what happens yeah you know, I, that's what i find and then um then you start using things you've learned um i think um so now you mentioned so how would you classify this book like if someone was looking at the book what would you tell them it is um i guess i generally describe it as literary historical fiction um i don't I'm not a, a reader of lesbian romances. I know there's a huge market for that. It's extremely popular. But I'm wary of anyone describing this book as that because I think anyone who's expecting the the kind of format of a lesbian historical novel, I mean, a, of a lesbian romance, would not be happy finding themselves reading my book because it's very... Um, very different from that. Uh, hmm. I th well, what what is that like? I mean, because I don't know. I've never read a, a, a lesbian romance. Um, I just don't. I don't read male romance either. I just don't read romance. Right. <laughs> right. What, it's just not. I don't know. I've never been intrigued enough to get into it. If there's a story I'm reading, or if there's a, a something I'm going through, um, and there's a romance in the story, that's fine. But I'm not looking for that as the main target when I buy a book so um, what's what's different about a lesbian romance is it is it that there's more challenge to it or no I think a lesbian romance are basically um, they used to be like dime books at the at the drugstore that you'd pick up there they're, they're um, it's a lot of uh, stuff about sex and drama about getting together and breaking up and um, 
from what I understand, is pretty formulaic. Um, but again, I haven't read enough of it to be able to to characterize it well. Um, hmm. So the girls in your book don't throw beer at each other. No. <laughs> there, there definitely, there definitely is some drama, but um, yeah, and, and there's, there's romance, but no beer. No beer thrown, so it's 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 calm. Well, I just um, you know, it's it's, it's kind of a you know, it's a, I, I'm always. What do you think about the um, LBGT and 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 the the uh, categories of writing and stuff like that? Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Um, do you read a lot in that category or just stay away from it? Um, I think, you know, in... When I was first coming out, there was so little of it that I just read anything I could get my hands on. Um, and, you know, so, so everything from the well of loneliness to uh, Rita Mae Brown, you know. Um, and, um, but now there are many more choices. And so I uh, I tend to lean towards books that are more literary, that have a little more substance to them. Yeah, well, yeah, you're looking for a little bit of meaning outside of just the romance. So, so nobody's going to get sex in your books. There is a little bit of sex. Ooh, um, okay, not, Ooh, not a ton. Um, <laughs> my wife used to joke that, you know, if, 
it wasn't a lesbian novel unless the phrase undulating hips came up. So <laughs> I knew for sure there would be no reference to undulating hips. But, um, I mean, that was, that was tricky, too, because, you know, they didn't have a language for any of this. Um, there, were, there weren't books that they could read about this. They had to just kind of make it up as they went along. And so that was challenging to try to figure out how to describe their feelings for one another and their physical um, relationship. Uh, it, was, it was a delicate balance. Yeah, I imagine it would be. And you, and, and you do want to make sure you kind of get it right. You don't want to do too much uh, fiction in certain areas, I'd imagine, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, you'd have to be careful, right? Do you have uh, favorite readers or writers that you like to read? And, and do you have favorite or movie makers? Like, where do, do you get some sort of, um, you know, thrill out of certain writers? Yeah, now, as soon as you say that, I'm like, I can't think of the name of a single writer. <laughs> well, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, whenever you're on a show with writers and they say, do you know any writers or people that inspire you, just name the hosts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you see, then you can never go wrong. You say, well, you know, I really like your books. And and then then it's, you know, uh, I'm telling you, I, I've learned that a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, but okay, let's do this. Like, uh, do you, So what do you do for um, your own entertainment as far as literature or, or, or movie watching or series? Do you watch dramas or fiction, nonfiction, um, horror? Like where, where do you, where, where do you like to sit down and, and read and watch? In terms of TV and movies, I tend to lean more toward comedies just because there's so much serious stuff going on in the world I like to get a little break from it um, but that's not to say that I don't watch um, you know things that are are sad or um, challenging um, but that but I do tend to lean towards comedy when I'm looking at stuff to watch in terms of reading I read pretty widely. I don't read a ton of nonfiction, although at the moment I'm reading a memoir. Um, and uh, in terms of fiction reading, um, I read a lot of uh, all different kinds of authors. I mean, like I like Ann Patchett a lot. Um, there's an author from England named Rose Tremaine. She was uh, um, a couple of her books really inspired me, actually. And um, I'm trying to think who else. Uh, some fun books that I've been reading lately are by an author named Ellen Meister. Um, and in two of the books, she has uh, this premise that Dorothy Parker has not gone toward the light and remains at the Algonquin Hotel as a ghost. Um, and they're very entertaining. You get a lot of that Dorothy Parker wit in, in the books. Um, but then she also has a number of other books, and they're just, they're fun. They're smart and fun. Um, so the, that's, you know, some of the lighter reading that I do. But, uh, yeah, I just, I read a lot of historical fiction. Um, 
Washington Black, I thought was amazing. Author's name now, um, but that was about a, a a slave boy who gets taken under the wing of a scientist. Um, so yeah, I just I, I read. I hear Al Warren's really good. Yeah, <laughs> 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 I heard that too. Yeah, me too. <laughs> No, I was wondering, with, with your poetry, mm-hmm. you were talking about um, how uh, writing bad poetry in high school, and I, I did the same thing. I just never, you know, kept up with it. got better. I never got better. <laughs> I never got better. You know, I, was, I was kind of reading, you know, James Douglas Morrison, you know, Jim Morrison from The Doors, and then romanticizing myself a poet, uh-huh. uh, which I never really was. But uh, I was just wondering, you know, when I wrote stuff like that, I just kind of... You know, I would also romanticize it kind of like jazz. I would just kind of write it as it as I felt it. And I'm just wondering um, how, if, if you, I guess if you structure your poems, if there's a, a type of structure that you use, or um, if it's more just um, going by feel. Yeah, it's, it's definitely more by feel. Um, owing to the fact that I don't have a formal education in poetry, I never really learned the, you know, the kind of classic formats like sonnets and villanelles and mm. all of that. So, and I did take, I audited a class on that once at the University of Chicago and uh, discovered that I have absolutely no ear for hearing meter. It just seems completely arbitrary to me. So I gave up pretty quickly on the idea that I was going to write any kind of poems that had meter. Um, I tend to be drawn more to poems that have a narrative focus, um, though sometimes poems that are, you know, completely, um, like I don't understand really what the author is saying, but they're beautiful in some way anyway. Um, that, yeah. that does happen occasionally, but I do tend to like things that have a more more narrative focus and um, is lyrical in some way. I'm, I'm really drawn to uh, similes and metaphors and trying to take abstract things and make them concrete, put them in, put them in um, words that other people can identify with more easily. So that's, that's kind of how I work with that. Makes sense. I wonder, so do you find that, you know, because you, you said you published way back in 1990, and um, I just wonder, um, times were quite a bit different in the 90s. It seemed much happier um, in general, and in going more the right direction, especially for uh, gays and lesbians. But um, So did you find your writing to be, uh, let's say, happier? perkier or your mood to be that way so therefore it was more of a positive direction you were writing in let's say than it is now or how, how do you find it um that's an interesting question i think um because in my first book i was focusing a fair amount on um some things from childhood from my family um, and also relationships, which I was not <laughs> doing well with early on in life. Um, you were throwing too much beer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I, uh, it, the first book is actually, in some ways, 
darker. Although in my current book, still, you know, I there's pretty much nothing that is taboo for me. I mean, I write, I write about nature. I write about my nieces and my niece and nephew. I write about my relationship with my wife. And, you know, some of it is very sad. I, there are poems in there. I lost my mom when I was 24 and I've written a bunch of poems about her uh, over the years. And, and they're often sad. Not all of them. Some of them are about, you know, happy things in our life before she died. But yeah, so I, it's, it's a, it's a mix. And I don't, I'm not good at political poems. I find I get too, too didactic and it just ends up being blah. I mean, I've written a few. Um, I had one published recently, not, not in the book, um, called This Is Not My Story. Uh, I don't know if you saw the footage of that little boy who was left in the desert um, by a group of people traveling from Mexico and was found by a, an off-duty um, police officer. Uh, and the footage of him sobbing um, scared out of his mind just really got to me. And so, um, you know, that's, that's one of the few times when I got a little bit political, but it's, it's on a more human level and not, uh, big ideas. When you've written something darker or sadder, um, when you're finished a work like that, do you feel you need to decompress? And if, if so, how do you do that? Or can you just move on to the next thing? For me, part of, part of the writing process um, helps me deal with, what, you know, whatever the issues are. I think um, it helps me bring into focus what I'm really feeling, and it kind of gives me a place to put those feelings and then I can move on. Um, you know, obviously, well, I think obviously over the, the decades since my mom has died, I don't, I don't feel her death in the same kind of intense way I did back then. But, you know, she, she still occupies a, an important part um, in my thoughts and in my, in my poetry. Um, so, you know, it just, sometimes I know exactly what I want to write about and then I have to figure out why I want to write about that and, um, what the poem is going to contain. And other times things are just kind of like phrases will pop into my head and I'll go with that. Or, um, most often when I start a poem, I don't know how it's going to end. Um, that's that's part of the the fun of it for me is seeing how the poem develops. Do do you like poetry better than 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 the stories, the fiction, or what's what's kind of been your favorite thing to to do? I think poetry, even though I probably read these days more fiction than I do poetry, I still try to read a lot. Um, poetry is is closer to my heart in some ways. Um, it's, it's really gotten me through a lot and I just, the language is so much crisper, I think, than writing fiction. 
Um, Howard Nemeroff, the poet, said that uh, writing a novel is a marriage and writing poetry is an affair. So part of what I like about poetry is I can do it, I can do it relatively quickly and carry it around with me. Um, in fiction, you know, it's just, it's a much longer, slower process. So there, there's kind of a high that comes with completing a poem and feeling like I did a good job. I guess the connection is different. Like, do you, do you feel a connection to your characters um, when you're writing the book or, or once you've completed the book? Like with Infraction, do you sort of look back and feel um, some sort of, I don't know, connection? Or, or do you feel like your characters were, were like friends or, or family? Do you have anything like that going on? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I I feel very emotionally involved with them. I just find them fascinating. And, you know, that sounds uh, conceited because <laughs> I wrote it. But um, I just, they're, they turned into really interesting people as I went along. Um, and, and they became more real to me. Um, no, I, a lot of a lot of writers say that. So, fiction writers. I'm not one. I do nonfiction. So, I, I but I hear that a lot. Um, to me, it sounds kind of nutty, but um, <laughs> that's because. Well, there of you go. I, well, yeah, that's just where I'm from. I always just kind of go, well, okay. I don't. I don't have any relationship with fictional characters. I don't. I don't get it. So that's why I always kind of ask that. Did you? Did you? Um, I wonder too for so so some of the smaller characters or people that are uh, let's say fillers in the book or they're just there for whatever reason short short roles um, do you get those from people you know do you like or do you go out to um, coffee shop and see someone and someone's personality and kind of go oh that that kind of person would fit or um, I know um, JD Horn says that he you know if if someone that's in a lineup or someone cuts them off or something, uh, or is rude to them in a store, he always takes that character and uses them and kills them off. <laughs> oh, and I find that really fun. So uh, but did you get that creative in that sort of process, or is it just not, not at all? Um, I think, I don't know, maybe this is a lack on my part, but translating from modern-day people and how they act to these more genteel sorts um, it wasn't wasn't an easy um, equation for me. They, you know, I just I didn't I, I tend not to see people that I know in the in the position of the characters in the in the book. Um, I'm not, you know, I again, it's it's kind of a mystery to me. I don't really know how they developed the way they did uh, to some extent. Like I'm thinking about the the. Um, the subplot with the gay male character, I, I'm i not quite sure how I figured out what his personality was. Um, it just, yeah, it just yeah. kind of evolved. I just want to make sure you weren't going to use me and maybe have, have, have me run over by a herd of horses well, I don't or know. something, right? Yes, yeah, so the next book. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the next book. I get, I'm the guy that's being ripped apart by horses. You know, it's like, well, thank you. No, no, and, and I think it's important you're right, because when you do a timepiece, you've got to, you know, one of the things that, that bothers me the most is when I see something or read something and it's supposed to be a timepiece and they're speaking like it's 2021. 
Yeah, that was something I was very careful with. I just I wanted to make sure I didn't have them saying anything like okay and um yeah. Sorry for your loss. That one drives me nuts. <laughs> it's such a common thing now, or thank you for your service, and it's like, and then all of a sudden they're saying it in 1923. It's yeah. like, no, that's just, come on. <laughs> um, one of the things I had fun with in the book was there are a ton of Russian proverbs and sayings that some of them are, are similar to sayings that we have, and others are just like so unusual. I had a lot of fun working those into the book, and that, that helped to give the flavor of the time and place, I think. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a really good method. Um, you know, excellent. Do you put yourself in your in the characters then? Do you put some of your own – do you see yourself in any of them? How's that? I, you know, I certainly didn't do any of that intentionally. I guess to some extent I – I see in Maria, um, we share the same passion for literature and learning, but our personalities are very different. I'm probably uh, more like Vera in that I'm kind of, I don't know how else to say it, I was going to say softer, but, you know, just kind of uh, more easygoing, I guess. Although I'm, I'm, I guess I'm not really easygoing. I'm pretty high-strung, but. <laughs> well, I was going to say, maybe you have a multi-personality disorder. Or yeah. <laughs> Depends on the day and everything like that, right? You know, you know. Um, so now, uh, do you yourself have a website, or do you have a place that you like your, your readers or, or fans to come find you um, at? I do have a website. Uh, it is just Yvonne. Uh, hyphen zipter.com and uh, I owe the genesis of that to the publisher of my poetry book who insists that all of her writers have their own website um, and I, I had had one years ago but it was too complicated for me to keep up uh, somebody else had designed it for me and was putting in the information and then when she stopped doing that, she's a friend who, you know, had her own life, um, I had to, I let go of the website because I just, I didn't know how to fix it. But now there are a lot of um, web forms that are much easier to use. And uh, I, in fact, just updated it yesterday with a new photograph that I put in. So... Um, that that's a good place to go to find out about my books, uh, poems that are published online. Um, I have I have a project that's kind of unusual and um, gets a lot of attention, it, which is because I love poetry so much. I want other people to love it, and I always felt like people are afraid of poetry, but if they were encountering it in kind of a fun way. Maybe they'd be more open to it. Uh, I have two what are repurposed toy vending machines, one at a um, local brew pub, Cider House and Brew Pub, and one at Women and Children First Bookstore. And it vends two-inch capsules, each with a published poem of mine in it. Um, they sell for 50 cents, and I use the money. I get the proceeds to... 
a local arts group called Arts Alive Chicago, and they use it for painting supplies and whatnot. So I did not, I thought that that would be like a short-term thing, that people would get bored with it, but it's it's been years now, and people seem to really enjoy the excitement of getting a poem dropped into their palm. Um, so there's information about that on the website as well. Well, that's interesting. That's a, I've never heard of that kind of That's a great thought. That's good. Um, good thought, you know. Um, so what are you working on next? What comes out for Yvonne Zipter next? I'm, I was going to start on this new novel, and then last year I had a very tumultuous health year. Oh. Um, and um, I'm actually, uh, well, let me give you a brief the brief synopsis of that so that I can talk about what I'm working on. But uh, I wound up in the ER at the end of June last year with severe abdominal pain, which turned out to be referred pain from a partially collapsed lung. And while they were trying to diagnose that, they found that I had uh, ovarian cancer. So after they pumped the gunk out of my lung, I got to recuperate for about a month, and then I went to go have surgery, and then undergo chemo. So along the way, I've met some very interesting people, a lot of really amazing nurses and doctors, and then some very weird, goofy technicians. Um, and my wife and I like to entertain my oncologist with stories about these technicians <laughs> and, uh, and make her laugh. Um, and we were doing that at one appointment. He said, you know, you should write a memoir. And I thought that was a pretty good idea because it was a very, very haphazard the way all of this happened. I mean, if it hadn't been for the fact that I had a partially collapsed lung from pneumonia, and by the way, it was the first symptom I had that anything was wrong. I had no problems with breathing or fever or any of that. Um, if it hadn't been for that, they wouldn't have found the cancer. And, you know, who knows how long it would have taken before that came to light. So I just I just feel very lucky uh, to have gone through all of that as, as well as I did. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. And and um, I'm ho I hope you're doing better now. Things are things are better for you. Yeah, the last um, the CT scan and um, a blood test have shown no evidence of disease. So it was a very early stage. It was barely um, stage two, um, which is also unusual for ovarian cancer because the symptoms are so diffuse. It often doesn't get diagnosed until much later along and then it gets harder to treat um, but um, my doctor had this my oncologist had this great metaphor she said in the surgery he pretty much the surgeon got rid of everything um, but they still wanted to do chemo because she said it's like if you're eating a sandwich on a plate and you don't get any crumbs on the plate when you're done you still wash the plate. And so that's kind of what they were thinking of with the chemo, is that that would, you know, it was just kind of a an extra insurance and to, to catch any little microscopic things that the surgeon might have missed. 
So, um, you know, I just, like I said, I feel lucky. And uh, hmm. I, yeah. I did not have the problems with chemo that other people had. Um, I'm getting my hair back now, so that's very exciting. How do you do that? I, I've lost mine, but I can't <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry, you know, mine's not coming back. There's got to be a reason, right? Yeah. Oh, it's terrible. Well, you know, it's certainly been great. And, of course, now, of course, uh, people can go to your publisher for this book, Rattling Good Yarns, and pick up Infraction as well. Um, certainly been interesting talking to you, and uh, we certainly learned a lot. You know, uh, if you write poetry, you like having affairs. and. <laughs> <laughs> and do not throw beer in other people's face. You, know, you never can, tear, can get a good, good long-term relationship that way. I mean, you know. So, well, I'm our guest is to provide you with all this good information. I know. I mean, I you know, I love it when you have fun and learn something too, right? It's just I come out of it a better person, you know. Um, but our guest has been the author of the new book called Infraction. Yvonne Zipter, thank you for being here. My pleasure, and I still feel that way, even at the end of the interview. So thank you to both of you. I, I really enjoyed it. It was very uh, a very thoughtful um, interview. Thanks, Yvonne. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. By George, he's got it. It is the end. I'll see you. If you're lying to me, I'll be back. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.